I mentioned before the break that there's something recognizable, archetypal about what we're doing together. As we go beyond the excitement of being here, the newness of it, and uh, go beyond any anxiety we might have, sharing a room with somebody we don't know or being in an unfamiliar place. One of the qualities that might rise up might become clear is this quality of the heart. You could call it basic goodness or loving kindness. Some of you remember uh, Common Ground's original space, seven blocks east of the current space. We had for many, many years a big painting, calligraphy, um, to characters, bodhicitta, awakened heart. It's one way you can translate that, bodhicitta. And this word, bodhicitta, became, uh, in later Buddhist traditions, became a central theme, practice theme, sometimes translated as basic goodness, the basic goodness of the heart. So instead of this being some theoretical concept, we could just check now, you know, as we're sitting here together, not being confused by any uneasiness or anxiety that might be there. We're not repressing it, but in a sense, looking through it and looking through any excitement. And as we touch and recognize the motivations that got us here and the qualities that are awakened being here in this setting, you might notice that quality of basic goodness or kindness. I think it's fair to say that we're all here because we care about this life. And that's not a small thing, actually. When you think about it, so much of what we do during the day, or at least there are many moments each day when our activity, you know, the activity of our thoughts, of our words, of our actions, is not about taking care of ourselves in a deep, resonant way. On some level, there is some faith. Each of us has some faith or confidence that the only real way forward, the only real way toward happiness, 
the full release of the mind and heart is through a deepening of understanding. And that's really what the retreat experience is all about. We're here because we care about this life and somehow, to some degree, we understand that the way we take care of this life or the way we realize how to be free is through deepening, through a deepening of understanding. So well, let's take a moment and each of us in our own way recognizing and acknowledging this basic goodness. It may be as simple as feeling, directly feeling now in the heart, some actual sense of wishing for safety, for happiness, for peace. I care about this life. May I be safe and happy and at ease. Not theoretically, but actually, I do care about this life right here and now. Care about this body and mind. I do not wish for harm. I wish for safety and ease. And the thing about uncovering this basic goodness is we also begin to uncover its, this characteristic of expansion. It's like as we actually tune into that wish to be safe, to be free from suffering, to be free from emotional afflictions, constricted states of mind, constricted states of the body. As we tune into that, we can't actually help but noticing that feeling expand to include others. I mean, it just wouldn't make sense to be touching, to be opening to that basic goodness and to have the thought, but I don't want you to be safe. I don't want you to be happy or free. <clears throat> Why wouldn't we wish for everybody here to be safe, to realize happiness, freedom of the heart, And this creates this very interesting place in the mind, in our practice, as we first and foremost, as we recognize this basic goodness. So during the course of the next four days, we have literally 
thousands of opportunities, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of opportunities to remember, to recognize this basic goodness in the heart, the heart that cares. And to the degree that we're able to recognize that basic goodness, then we have this opportunity to recognize its tendency to expand, to be inclusive. Sometimes it's described as being boundless or immeasurable. And then to that degree that we recognize basic goodness, metta, loving-kindness, and we recognize its boundless nature, its immeasurable nature, its tendency to open and expand, then we're likely to notice it being challenged by fear, like fear of including everyone, fear of caring, fear of appreciating, like the old habits of mind that have more of the characteristic of constriction, self-centeredness, they rise up to challenge. They feel threatened in some ways. And these are important moments of practice. So just as we can have thousands and thousands of moments of recognizing basic goodness, recognizing its expansion, its immeasurable quality. We can have many, many, many moments of noticing constriction, fear-based constriction, greed-based constriction, the constriction of distraction, wanting to get the mind, wanting to obsess or proliferate about some detail. Was that cumin in the dish today or was it, you know, curry? Could I make this at home? We can proliferate, we can obsess about so many details, you know, as a way of being distracted, being caught up in things that ultimately aren't important. And all that, of course, is just one more flavor of constriction, of the heart cutting itself off from the moment, cutting itself off from basic goodness. And as a practitioner, our job isn't to you know, take out the sword and destroy all the habits of distraction, all the habits of greed and aversion, or to climb the mountain of basic goodness and, you know, capture the flag at the top of the peak and be forever perfect goodness. Our job is to get interested in this movement, movements, moments of realizing basic goodness, realizing its tendency to expand and include, moments of realizing narrowness and constriction and the heart or mind feeling burdened and reactive and heavy, tight. 
and getting interested in that full range. Pema Chodron, in her book, The Places That Scare You, has a couple questions. She says, what do I do? These are questions we can ask ourselves. She says, what do I do when I feel I can't handle what's going on? Where do I look for strength? And in what do I place my trust? What do I do when I feel I can't handle what's going on? Where do I look for strength? And in what do I place my trust? So we can observe, you know, how the mind addresses those questions over and over again during the course of these four days. What does the mind do when it feels it can't handle what's going on? Where does the mind look for strength? Where do we, where does the mind place its trust? This is from that quote, or those questions rather, comes right at the beginning of the, the book, chapter 2. She says, Finding the basic goodness of bodhicitta, the awakened heart, is like that, tapping into a spring of living water that has been temporarily encased in solid rock. When we touch the center of sorrow, when we sit with discomfort without trying to fix it, when we stay present to the pain of disapproval or betrayal and let it soften us, these are the times that we connect with bodhicitta. Tapping into that shaky and tender place has a transformative effect. Being in this place may feel uncertain and edgy, but it is also a big relief just to stay there, even for a moment, feels like a genuine act of kindness to ourselves. And this is important because we have to counter the tendency to fix the problems in the moment. And we have to detect that opening to the experience of being confused or opening to the experience of being restless or opening to the experience of being sleepy, having doubt, or whatever the particular state is. It's a very beautiful, noble way to respond to difficulty. It's not a giving up. It's not a failure in any way to be interested to turn toward what is happening. And as Pema Chodron says, we can recognize this as an act of kindness, a real strength of heart to be willing to be present, to be open. And it's really hard, especially if you're relatively new to practice, to trust this. I should say, even if you're you know, really experienced, because I find this hard. You know, when when my mind isn't that in that ideal state, you know, isn't a respectable place, isn't something I'd like anybody else to see, 
it can feel like my practice should be to fix it, you know, before anybody notices, before I notice. But we instead we can see it as a, a real act of wisdom and kindness to acknowledge, oh, oh, it's like this. So just to continue reading, just to stay there, even for a moment, feels like a, gener a genuine act of kindness to ourselves. Being compassionate enough to accommodate our own fears takes courage, of course, and it definitely feels counterintuitive, but it's what we need to do. It's hard to know whether to laugh or cry at the human predicament. Here we are with so much wisdom and tenderness, and without even knowing it, we cover it over to protect ourselves from insecurity. Although we have the potential to experience the freedom of a butterfly, we mysteriously prefer the small and fearful cocoon of ego. Over and over and over again. She goes on in this chapter to talk about a friend of hers whose parents have moved to Florida, you know, pursuing the American dream and working hard, saving money so they can retire. And they move in a gated community and Pema Chodron's friend, whose parents are doing this, you know, over the years talks to her about how the parents become more and more frightened. You know, first they have the gated community and then concerned about the people who are allowed in the gated community to repair things or fix things and less and less going out, having other people delivering things. And so this basic approach to life where we're trying to find the release of the heart by being safe, by the safety that comes from being in control, we can see how it doesn't work. And one of the ways that manifests in retreat practice is you start getting fundamental about the rules of the retreat, about the guidelines. You know, there are Marta and Spruce had to say a lot. And besides that, there's the guideline sheet and all the unstated rules. And it can feel really overwhelming. And then we just add our own interpretation on top and and we feel like like even with the meditation instructions, this sort of Nazi, you know, where this uh, anal quality and that somehow if I'm just really tight and really dedicated and really... But the whole thing is stained from the beginning with fear. It's like that's based on uh, an assumption that there's a boogie person out there to get us. And we better get our act together or we're going to be swept away by the deluded habits of the mind. So one way or another, we, we get under the influence, we get seduced by patterns of mind, habits, conditioned patterns of mind that lead the mind into narrow places and tend to sustain the mind in narrow places.
a little later, Payment Children says, Rather than going after those walls and barriers with a sledgehammer, we pay attention to them. With gentleness and honesty, we move closer to those walls. We touch them and smell them and get to know them well. We begin a process of acknowledging our aversions and our cravings. We become familiar with the strategies and beliefs we use to build the walls. What are the stories I tell myself? What repels me and attracts me? We start to get curious about what's going on. Without calling what we see right or wrong, we simply look as objectively as we can. Now the interesting thing about that way of practicing, and this is really helpful, is to see it as that basic goodness, that basic kindness. Because otherwise it, it can feel a bit sterile and uh, nihilistic to be mindful of difficult experience, to be mindful of restlessness, to be mindful of sleepiness, to be mindful of our wandering mind. But we really want to see or experience it as a kind of warmth and an embracing awareness, an affectionate presence with the mind. Because it has that sort of grandmotherly feeling like, of course it's like this now. Of course. This isn't wrong or, you know, we're, we haven't gone off the deep end. This is how it is. This is what minds do. Conditioned minds spin in these kinds of ways, precisely these kinds of ways. And the difference now is we can understand that it's like this. We don't ha have to be lost in it or identified with it because we can care about it. That's the alternative. Hating it, resisting it, trying to make it go away is just another way of being identified and attached to it. Being the one who's no longer going to think about that thing that I'm not supposed to think about, that's an attachment to that thing we don't think we should be thinking about. She says, Pema Children says, we become familiar with the strategies and beliefs we use to build the walls. What are the stories I tell myself? What repels me? What attracts me? We start to get curious about what's going on. Without calling what we see right or wrong, we simply look as objectively as we can. We can observe ourselves with humor, not getting overly serious, moralistic, or uptight about this investigation. Year after year, we train in remaining open and receptive to whatever arises. Slowly, very slowly, the cracks in the wall seem to widen and, as if by magic, bodhicitta, this awakened heart, or this basic goodness, is able to flow freely. I remember in uh, one, of the, one of the books they wrote about Deepama, this very wise and saintly woman, Indian woman, who was a teacher of Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and a number of other Westerners who uh, practiced with Munindaji. Deepama was connected with Munindaji in India. And uh, one of the things 
she said something like, When the heart is not afraid, love pours through. So this basic goodness is just ready. In a way, it has, uh, it's the force of nature. It's just like, uh, you know, weeds are just waiting to grow up in the cracks of the sidewalk. Just, just all it needs is a little, little bit of debris, you know. And then life kind of pushes through, comes through. The same thing with this basic goodness. It just needs a little crack. A little crack in the fear-based patterns of a self-centered mind, the conditioned mind. And it just creeps in. And the key for us, you know, cultivating mindfulness is to begin to notice that, to trust it, and to really take it as a refuge. The quality of basic goodness and that quality of inclusivity, like basic goodness is characterized by this capacity to include the way it is. Not to immediately construct uh, defense or uh, responding with hardness. So in the rest of this chapter two, Tapping into the Spring is the title of this chapter. Pema Chodron talks about, you know, how, like, what are the catches? And th this is really good for us, you know, at the beginning of the retreat to reflect on. And then I'll end just by mentioning these three, and we can come back to them tomorrow during the guided sit at 8.30. I'll mention a little bit more, but she talks about uh, three ways that we shield ourselves from this fluid, unpin-downable world. Three strategies we use to provide ourselves with the illusion of security, right? So this is the trap, is that as long as I have this sense of separation, then the mind, the conditioned mind, is desperate for strategies to provide that sense of separation with security, which, of course, can never really be found. So it's a frustrating endeavor, yet the conditioned mind is very... Addict, addicted to it. How can I find some security? How can I feel safe? And she goes on to talk about the three ways that we, three misunderstandings really. One is just about sense experience. Somehow it feels like if I can just line up certain sense experiences, I'll feel safe. Notice how many times when we're feeling a little uneasy, it feels like if I just go eat a few almonds, if I just go make myself a cup of tea, if I just go take a hot shower, if I just go lie down, I've tried all of those things today, I'll be better. And uh, it doesn't mean that those sense experiences won't be pleasant, and they, they will have an effect, but it's reinforcing the sense, each time I do something like that, it reinforces the sense that that voice was me. The voice that said, uh, I don't feel good. If I do this, I'll be better. And it's also reinforcing the sense of self to say, you don't need to do that. You know, you're just indulging. That's just another part of the same game. But we can get interested in it. 
So one of the things we can do on retreat is get interested in that little voice or not so little voice, that loud voice that is basically telling you or telling us, you know, this sense experience, whatever it is, go out and watch the birds at the bird feeder, take a walk in the woods, take a nap. And please don't think I'm saying that all these things are bad and you shouldn't do them. Or go upstairs and make a peanut butter and banana sandwich or whatever their little voice is saying. Get interested in that experience right then. And just see if that nudgy, uncomfortable feeling can be met with basic goodness. So you, in a way, we're suspending whether or not we're going to take the nap or make the cup of tea or take the walk or look at the birds or get the book to read or that sort of restless search for something that's going to make me feel safe and better. We suspend that choice. We're not saying we're going to do it and we're not saying we're not going to do it. But instead, we're going to take that time to feel that uneasy feeling and include it with basic goodness. Oh yeah, it's like this. This unsettled, uneasy, restless, heavy, whatever the particular qualities. Oh, oh yeah. You belong too. The second you know, pattern that Pema children mentions, and these are just exactly probably what you would come up with if you reflected on it too, the, the ways that the mind gets seduced. So we get seduced by the idea of some sense experience that we bring to mind as basically a savior for the uneasy feeling we have in the heart. Another is a concept. So some idea, some thought. It could be like... Uh, the thought, boy, if I could just get on a longer retreat, you know, I'd take care of this. Or if I could just... So we have some idea, some thought, some mental proliferation, figuring something out, understanding something on that intellectual or conceptual level. And you'll see this like in, in terms of the retreat, like how important it is to figure things out. Is this person who's sitting next to me a good person or not? You know, uh, do the people who are running the retreat know what they're doing or not? I mean, they can seem like really important questions. Was that speech Obama gave for, at the State of the Union a good speech or not? Are the Republicans really bad people or they just have different points of view? And they could be really compelling this world of thought, and like, if only I get this all straightened out, whatever it is, then, then I can go back, then that uneasy feeling will go away. I've mentioned this story before about a good friend of mine, Paul Knorr, maybe a couple of you remember, he's a long-time TCVC person, but he's moved to California, I don't know, eight years ago or something, used to teach at Common Ground a little, but during one of his nine-day retreats he was doing, he just, the mind was you know probably uneasy in some way and the mind felt like if it could just figure out the top 20 movies of all time in the correct order that this uneasiness would go away and so for a long period of time during that retreat he spent figuring out you know citizen kane 
number four or number six and you know all the different you know possibilities and these silly things they they arise because of an uneasiness in the heart and somehow if only I get this then that uneasiness will go away so in the same way we can get obsessed about a sense pleasure or a sense experience you know, if, just, if I just have a warm cup of tea, just a little caffeine in my blood, or whatever, you know, if I could just figure this thing out, how am I going to handle this thing? What am I going to do in the future? Should we buy that couch or this other couch? And then the, the third thing that we can get obsessive about and use as a, as a means to address uneasiness, but it never really addresses uneasiness in and it does just the opposite. It reinforces the tendency of the heart being uneasy. It's not that uh, pursuing a sense experience or pursuing some thinking or in this third way, pursuing a particular mind state is inherently bad. It's not inherently bad. But thinking that that sense experience, that thinking, that particular mind state is going to fundamentally uproot the uneasiness in the heart, that's not right. Because the problem with that uneasiness in the heart isn't that the conditions aren't right. The problem is we don't understand what that uneasiness is. We have to understand the uneasiness. And this is what the basic goodness the basic kindness of the heart allows. It creates the stability and the capacity really to turn toward the moment in an embracing way. Oh, oh, it's just this uneasy feeling. Because one of the things that happens in this third way as meditators is we can get very obsessive about particular mind states that we like. You know, if only I can get in that samadhi groove that concentration place, then I'll be at ease. So it's still living in this world of good and bad. Unease, bad. Calm, good. And that's a very self-centered and constricted world to live in. It's true, though. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. Constricted states of mind are, relatively speaking, unpleasant. And calm states of mind relatively speaking, are pleasant. But being dependent on getting to a calm state is stressful. Having the capacity to open to the agitated state with our basic with the basic goodness is liberating. Not having to fix the messy world is liberating. Always having to make the world, the mind the body perfect is hell literally it is hell so we can be on the lookout you know these days we can be on the lookout for these three things um, some way the mind is relating to a particular sense experience with that that basic phrase if only this then I'll be happy or then my heart will be relieved or I'll be relaxed same thing with the thinking something to think through if only I can think this through to its conclusion, kind of get clear about this, 
then my heart will be at ease. Things will be good. And then the third, if only I can have this kind of mind state, this sort of heart state, get to this nice place, then I'll be at ease. And they're like a little mindfulness spells when we catch one of those three things. And then it's like the question can arise, what am I running from? Or those questions that Pema Children asks, um, what do I do when I feel I can't handle what's going on? Oh, this is what I do when I when a mind feels it can't handle what's going on. I look for a sense experience that will be pleasant. I look to figure something out with my, my thinking mind. I look for a particular mind state. Oh, so what am I doing? Where do I look for strength? What do I place my trust in? And then we can see, well, there's this other alternative, which is this basic goodness, bodhicitta. Maybe I can turn to that. So I'll leave it here. And one of the ways that uh, we can activate bodhicitta is through the three refuges and the five precepts. It's really it's like an ancient calling out. We're really calling out for this basic goodness. And not out there in the world, but really calling out for it in our heart. So it's really important as we do this traditional recitation together now, it's really important that we're not seeing this as some old religious um, activity, but somehow we're speaking directly to our own heart when we take refuge in the Buddha. We're taking refuge in bodhicitta, this basic goodness, the basic freedom of the heart that's capable of embracing everything. We take refuge in Dhamma. This is the world that we're willing to embrace. Dhamma is this world, this messy, ephemeral world that we're willing to embrace. Spruce will hand out, if you, don't, if you didn't pick one up, just raise your hand and Spruce will hand it out to you. And then when we take refuge in Sangha, we're taking refuge in these beautiful qualities that arise when the mind is attuned to basic goodness. You know, how responsive, how nimble, how skillful, how fearless our actions can be, our thoughts and words can be. So the traditional recitation is first we pay our respects to our first teacher, the Buddha. That's We do three times, that's at the very top. Then we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha three times. So the Dutiyampi and Tatiyampi just means second time, third time. And then we recite the five precepts. This is just a way of creating safety. And it's really an expression. It's like an expression of Sangha, the beautiful qualities that come forward when we're in this place of basic goodness is not harming. There's a profound respect, and it's not a tight thing about not harming, like, oh, I don't want to step on an ant. It's really a joyful thing, like wanting to care for things inanimate and animate. It's just like a joy. We, we, we appreciate taking care of each other, whether you're 
doing your yogi job or just negotiating the doorway as we're all walking out at the end of a set. There's a kind of a appreciation of like, uh, how do we take care of ourselves and everybody else? It's such a, I mean, if you want your mind to problem solve, this is a great way to problem solve. How can I take care of everybody? You know, because it's not really possible, but we aspire to take care of everybody. It's like this beautiful conundrum. How do we take care of everybody in this world where life eats life? And we just give ourselves to it completely. And that in Buddhism, we express it in these five precepts. Undertaking the training to refrain from taking life, to refrain from stealing or taking things that aren't given. In the uh, duration of the retreat, we refrain from sexual activity. And let's use that instead of sexual intercourse. So to refrain from sexual activity. And the fourth, undertaking the training to refrain from telling lies or false speech. And then the last is to refrain from intoxicating the mind. Okay, so we'll do this chant. And then we'll sit for five minutes or so in silence. And then uh, I'll ring the bell. And some of you will need to meet with Spruce or Martha and Leslie. Mm-hmm. I can make an announcement also because there are a couple of important yogi jobs that I realize haven't been done. Great. So maybe people who haven't signed up for a yogi job, if you could also see Spruce right afterwards in the other room, that would be great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate